0: Pretty sure. I don't know that I've ever heard this preached, let alone on a Christmas morning. And so I wanted to focus on the Christ of Christmas, and I wondered if it has occurred to you that we, the church, are a special people. Now, we're not special because of who we are, but we're special because of whose we are. We are the children of the Most High God. We've been adopted into His eternal family. God is our Father, and Jesus is our brother. That makes us special. We possess a special knowledge that most in this world do not know, do not understand, nor do they accept. So on this day, on the eve of Christmas, we recognize, we honor, and we celebrate the coming of the King. The first advent, when God sent His Son into the world and put into motion His eternal plan of redemption. Would you read along with me as I light the Christ candle? The Gospel of John tells us that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And here's the real kicker, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. An incredibly miraculous event, God became a man. Now, the world scoffs at such an idea, but God's people rejoice. We understand that the coming of Jesus celebrated at Christmas is the fulcrum of human history. The world does not understand that. You take the birth of Christ and all of human history pivots... On that reality, we understand that as God's people, the world has no idea of the significance of the advent of Christ in their lives and in this world. The world celebrates Christmas without any reference to or any understanding of the significance of His coming. Now today is probably one of the most attended worship services in all the church, and there are many, many pastors who will fill the pulpit today, and they will preach a happy, funny, feel-good message about what Christmas is all about, and the masses will leave unmoved and unaffected by the significance of this event. The world sings about fictional characters like Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Flying Red-Nosed Reindeer. Don't you know that song? Didn't you love that song as a kid? It meant gifts were coming soon, right? They sing of white Christmases, of chestnuts roasting on an open fire, of dashing through the snow to Grandma's house where certainly there's a big plate of freshly baked cookies. They sing of decking the halls with boughs of holly. The world sings about Christmas being the most wonderful time of the year. But why? Why is Christmas the most wonderful time of the year? Well, the kids will be jingle-belling, and everyone will be telling you to be of good cheer. There will be holiday greetings and gay happy meetings when friends come to call. There will be parties for hosting and marshmallows for roasting and caroling out in the snow. There will be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. There will be much mistletoeing and hearts will be glowing when loved ones come near. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing inherently wrong in enjoying those aspects of the Christmas season or of an individual family's Christmas tradition, but they have nothing to say about the significance of Christmas. Have you ever told someone Merry Christmas and they go, Ah, keep it to yourself, I don't care. Well, apparently (laughs) the joy of Christmas hasn't really impacted them very well, has it? We sing about the holy night of His birth. We sing about the biblical truth that communicates who He is and why He has come. So we sing about the Christ of Christmas. Again, not a traditional Christmas passage, but it is a very familiar passage in the Bible describing the suffering servant. The passage has long been understood to be the messianic prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, ordinarily, it would take me several sessions to get through this section of Scripture, but I just want to hit a brief overview of this and leave some points that will hopefully cause you to consider what Christmas is really all about. This passage tells us prophetically, about the first advent, the coming of Christ. Now, in the book of Isaiah, this is the fourth servant song. And in this song, Isaiah answers the age-old question, How can God love us? Have you ever wondered how God can love us? Have you ever said that out loud? I know that I have. And I don't know that I've ever thought about this passage of scripture, answering that question directly as to how or why God can love it. Author J. N. Oswald said this, God's power is at its greatest not in his destruction of the wicked, but in his taking all the wickedness of the earth into himself and giving back love. Wow. Think about that. Taking all of the wickedness of humankind, taking it into himself, and giving back Love. This is what the first advent began. This is what Easter culminates in and celebrates the completion of. It's God taking upon Himself the wickedness of man and giving back love and grace and the possibility of redemption. The age-old questions, how can the gracious promises of God come true for guilty people? How can the glory of God come down to people who deserve the wrath of God? Well, that question is answered in this passage. The passage that describes the suffering servant or the Christ of Christmas. Now, this is a lengthy passage, and I'm going to read each of these sections individually. Otherwise, it'll just be lost as we go through this. But the first thing that we're going to see here is he was repulsive but redemptive. Speaking about the suffering servant, thinking about the Christ of Christmas, he was repulsive, but redemptive. This first section describes, excuse me, this first section is God describing who this suffering servant is. This is from Isaiah 52. We'll begin in verse 13 and go through the end of that passage in 15, and then we'll continue on in Isaiah 53. Verse 13 says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man of men, excuse me. Thus he will sprinkle many nations, kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. So the first thing that we see here is that the servant is going to prosper, meaning he will accomplish God's purpose. Prospering isn't about what we accumulate It isn't about the mass of followers. It is simply about being obedient and faithful to the purpose of God in your life. And in this respect, the servant was most prosperous. He will be high and lifted up. He will be greatly exalted. And this is true both literally and figuratively. Many believe that this is a foreshadowing of Jesus being lifted up on the cross... He will be high and lifted up, and He will be exalted. He will be worshipped by those who would come to know Him as Lord and Savior. This exaltation will not only come from those who worship Him as Lord and Savior, but this exaltation, this being lifted high, will come from the Father who is greatly pleased and satisfied with what the servant has done. While He will be exalted and lifted up, the appearance of the servant will be greatly marred. What does it mean to mar the image of something? It means to tarnish it. It means to make it malign. It is to deform it. It is to make it unpleasant to look at. And this is exactly what happens to the appearance of Jesus due to the brutality of the cross, which would be His means of death. Historians tell us that in the days of Roman crucifixion, many of the victims victims never made it to the cross. They died before they even got there because the beating was so brutal. Many have described the beating that Jesus endured being so severe that His followers barely could recognize that that was in fact the one that they had heard and loved and had followed. Jesus was hard to recognize as he marched to the cross. His appearance had been greatly marred. The servant sprinkling many nations depicts sacrificial language, meaning the redemption provided by the servant will extend far beyond Israel. Not only in terms of space, but in terms of time. His death, some 2,000 years ago, is still sprinkling the opportunity of redemption all around the world, even today. The sovereign reign of the servant is indicated by the fact that he will shut the mouths of kings. Now thinking about that, in this culture, in this day and age, when Isaiah wrote this, in approximately 750 BC, Kings were all powerful. It was their way or the highway to oppose a king was certain death. And here it emphasizes that the servant is going to be the sovereign king who will shut the mouths of all other kings. One day they will understand who the servant really is and most likely they will shudder in the face of that reality that they have in fact persecuted the king and they have also persecuted his people. We have never been more aware of the militant enemies of Yahweh than we are today. There are nations who want to see nothing more than the destruction of those who call upon the name of Yahweh. They are fighting against God. They are attempting to destroy God's people. And one day they will know the truth. And for an eternity they will suffer... In the reality of that truth, not knowing what it is they have done. The servant was repulsive to the people, but redemptive in his mission, even to those who were repulsed by him. Now, we sit here today, some 2,000 years later, and we think to ourselves, Oh, I would have loved Jesus. Oh, I would have followed Jesus. Oh, I would have been one of the few that would have bowed down before Him and hung on His every word and been willing to die with Him. Not true. Tens of thousands of people heard Him speak, heard Him teach, And just 40 days after his death in the gathering of the upper room as recorded in the book of Acts, a mere 120 people gathered to await the promise of the coming of the Spirit. Well, not only was he repulsive but redemptive. Number two, he lived in rejection. The second section describes how the nations and even how the nation of Israel would see the servant when he appeared. This is from Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 3. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem Him. This is a collective description of how the masses of humanity have seen the person of Jesus through the ages. It speaks so clearly of the life of Christ. Thinking of all the people who gathered around Jesus and heard Him speak and heard Him teach and and hung on every word, how many of them continued to believe in Him, and some 2,000 years later, with the revelation of God's Word closed, and the historical accuracy of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus affirmed, how many today believe in Him? The mass of humanity has rejected Christ Because he is repulsive, even though he is redemptive, and he lived his life in rejection, and his existence today is still widely rejected by the mass of humanity. Christianity is consistently attacked and persecuted. It's no different today than it was when the day that Jesus walked. And you will notice the reception of the message of the servant requires the revelation of the arm of the Lord. Who has believed our message? It is the arm of the Lord that enables us by faith to understand who Jesus is, who the servant actually was, what it is he offers, how we can come to know that and how our lives will be eternally changed as a result of it. Verse 2 describes the servant's humble and modest upbringing bringing. There was nothing special about him. He wasn't incredibly tall. He wasn't incredibly handsome. He wasn't incredibly gifted. He wasn't talented. The village and the villages around him were saying, we gotta keep an eye on that guy. There's clearly something special about him. He lived a very common life as a carpenter in a very common village, raised in a very common family, and there was nothing of noteworthiness about him. Verse 3 describes a radical change that came upon Jesus' life when He began His earthly ministry. You see what it says here in verse 3. He was despised and forsaken a man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. this man who lived a quiet, nondescript life, all of a sudden became the scorn of the nation. He was hated by most. He was despised by the people he came to save. They opposed him. They retaliated against him. They falsely accused him, and eventually... They made sure that he was going to be nailed to a cross and die the, get, die the death of a guilty, vile criminal. As we think about the completion of the death of Christ, this was not a surprise to him. This was the mission. This was the purpose. This is why he came. He came to be rejected. He came to become the atonement for sin. And number three, Isaiah tells us in the song that he bore our sins. This third section describes what is going to happen to the servant when he comes. Verses four through six. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. there's not anything that happened to Jesus that He did not know in eternity past, before the mission that was initiated at His coming, He knew it all. He knew it all from the eternity past to His time on the cross. Everything in between. Jesus knew exactly what was before Him. He bore our griefs And He carried our sorrows. Jesus is often called a man of sorrows. Have you heard Him called that before? Well, you know why He is called a man of sorrows? It's because He took our sorrows upon Himself. He took our grief. He took our burden. The Son of God. The King of Kings. This man who lived a quiet, nondescript life in a quiet village in Nazarene. Became the sorrow of mankind. The theological word for this is imputation. Because Jesus became like us so that we could become like Him. You take our sin, our wickedness, and you place that upon Jesus... And He turns around through our faith in the cross and puts upon us His holiness, His righteousness, His goodness, His perfection. It's imputation. We give to Him who we are. He gives to us who He is. And that makes us acceptable to God. In unbelief, people look at Jesus on the cross and say... What on earth did you do to bring yourself to this punishment? Surely you were a wicked man. Surely you are guilty of some kind of egregious sin. Surely God is punishing you. But the reality is, God is punishing Him for our wrongdoing. This is why He is a man of sorrows. Because He took our grief, He took our burden. Verse 5 tells us that He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are all healed. Would you ever consider giving up something valuable or precious to, to you in exchange for somebody that was as despicably sinful as your mind can even imagine, would you be willing to do such a thing? You see, the blood of Jesus flows from the cross to the sinful, offering to take from us our guilt, taking from us our shame, Taking from us our loss, our tears, our despair and giving to us a whole new life. Not just for our time on this earth, but a life for eternity. Nothing else can do that. You could go into debt for the next 50 years buying your family the best that this world has to offer and it will have zero impact on their eternity. There's nothing anyone or anything in the world can do to take from us what Jesus took from us on the cross. We all share in this common need because each of us has gone astray. None of us is righteous. We all stand equally guilty before the cross. And as you look at yourself and say, well, you know, I'm not really that bad of an individual and I'm a pretty good gal if you really consider everything. Hogwash. We are all equally guilty We make a a scale of sinfulness, and if we aren't below the threshold, then we're probably pretty good people, and God would be pretty pleased to have us, right? Wrong. It is perfection. Perfection alone is what enables us to be accepted by God. And perfection only comes by faith through Christ on the cross. That's it. Fourth thing that we see in this is he died in innocence. This fourth section describes how the servant will respond to this... Burden of bearing the sins of those who would come to faith in Him. We read verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for His generation who considered that He was cut off and out of the land of the living for the transgressions of My people to whom the stroke was due, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Make no mistake about it, by Jesus' own choice, he went to the cross. No one drugged him. He wasn't kicking and screaming. He wasn't saying, You're making a big mistake. He was silent. He didn't even open his mouth. He wasn't caught up in unfortunate events that he couldn't get out of. He wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. He willingly laid down his life in obedience to the Father's plan of redemption to do for mankind what could not be done otherwise. He simply chose not to fight those who were sentencing him to death. Could Jesus have escaped it? Absolutely He could. Would He do that? Absolutely not. Why? Because He came to go to the cross. Verse 8 describes the people guilty of Jesus' death. It describes them as oppressors, those who are issuing judgment accusing Him of having been cut off. And why did all of this happen? Because of their own sinfulness. They were guilty of sin and deserving of death. And Jesus reversed the position and became the guilty one who died in their place as an innocent man. If the story of Jesus ended in the grave, His heroism and dying as an innocent man would have been admirable, but it would have been futile. The empty tomb proved that there was more to his death than anyone ever realized. And 2,000 years later, that realization is still changing the lives of the guilty sinner who knows nothing about the truth of Jesus. The last thing we see in our outline here, number five, he was crushed but victorious. This fifth section describes the results of the mission of the servant. We read verses 10 through verse 12. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one. My servant will justify the many... As he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. And interceded for the transgressors. Verse 10 tells us of the divine plan of God. This is laced all throughout scripture. It's reinforced all throughout the New Testament. The father crushed him God the Father did that the Father put him to grief the Father rendered him a guilt offering the Father sent him to the earth to be born of a virgin and laid in a manger to become the atonement of sin God did that why did God do that? He did that so He could love us through the Son. He did that so that we could be acceptable to His holy and His righteous standard. But as death was not the end, he will see his offspring, those who place their faith in him. We become the children of God. We are born from our faith in Christ. And those who call upon him Lord and Savior are the offspring, the first fruits of the Son of God. His days are extended into eternity where the good pleasure of the Father prospers his mission into the lives of others. Think about this. If Jesus, if His death, if His resurrection, only secured salvation of that generation, every single person after Jesus died would be lost, would be living in a state of hopelessness. But the truth of what Jesus did lives on into eternity, intersecting our lives today, where we can say, he is our King. He is my Lord, knowing that we are His offspring and we will be able to see Him and worship Him and be the fruit of the Father's good pleasure realized in Jesus Christ. Many will be justified through the anguish of the servant's soul. All the grief that Jesus bore, the gasping in His final breath, pain and the agony oozing from his body, all of that brought about the justification of those who had placed their faith in him. Because of what the servant did, he will possess the name that is above every name, and that is why he is called the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is none like him. There will never be another like him. This great king, this sovereign Lord, you see this at the very end, intercedes for those who belong to him. He intercedes for the transgressors. How can God love us? God loves us through his Son, the suffering servant... Our Lord and our Savior. This is the Christ of Christmas. And this is why we sing. Would you pray with me?